Welcome to Complete Curiosity, the podcast that addresses the big questions in little segments. Hello and welcome to the seventh complete webinar on truth, trust and transparency with me, Katie Ledger and Dr. Alan Watkins. Just a, a quick note before we get started, we've listed some of the webinars that we've um, done so far. All the webinars that we've done are on our website on uh, complete-coherence.com and also they are in podcast form as well so it's just a bit easier to listen to whilst you move around quite a bit. Hopefully you can do that fairly shortly and uh, I want to ask you to, to send in some questions as well either in the Q&A box or in the chat. It doesn't really matter and uh, we'll try and take those questions as, as many of those questions as we possibly can. So welcome, Alan. Given the title today, I suppose my first question really is, uh, you know, in a crisis, information is, is everything. And good afternoon, Katie, and good afternoon to everybody. It's a very difficult question. And this week's been particularly interesting in relation to trust as an issue, particularly because in the UK, you know, yesterday, Professor Neil Ferguson, the guy who's the primary architect of the social distancing policy in the UK, wasn't even following his own advice and was found to be entertaining his girlfriend against his own advice to the rest of the nation. So, you know, can we believe anything he says if we can't trust him to follow his own advice? And rather sadly, the exact same thing happened in Scotland with Dr Calderwood, who was also not following her own advice that she was giving to Scotland. So it's a pretty sorry state when, you know, if we follow the science and the experts, you know, can you really trust the experts when they don't follow their own advice? You know, so maybe we should trust politicians. Well, as everybody knows, you know, Boris Johnson, the UK Prime Minister, was sort of bragging about shaking everybody's hand, either healthcare workers or people with COVID. And then sadly, that nearly killed him personally. So is he the kind of person you want to trust? And of course, there's been a lot of noise on the media channels about Matt Hancock, the health minister in the UK's promises on PPE and whether you know he can be trusted to be delivering what he said he was going to do and secondly on the testing protocols you know he promised the nation that we'd be up to a hundred thousand tests and there seemed to be some political shenanigans going on whether we did or we didn't meet that figure but the general view is we didn't and we still not and of course the government's now doubled that figure you know largely after the horse has bolted I mean our death rate in the UK is four times what it is in Germany and a big difference in that death rate is partly down to testing. So we're in a pretty sorry state of affairs in terms of truth, trust and transparency, I think, in the UK. So I thought we'd start with a little poll about anybody watching or listening, who do they trust? Who does everybody trust? So we've given you a number of answers and you can click on as many answers as you'd like. Do you trust your parents, family, politicians, journalists, doctors, scientists? business leaders, your boss, your colleagues, or maybe yourself. So who do you trust? I mean, who do you go to for the information you talked about? So in a crisis, you know, so people are coming in and we're yet to see a vote for a politician or a journalist. <laughs> so with There's a journalist background. Journalists, Alan. <laughs> so, uh, oh, there we go. One person. Was that you voting for yourself there, Katie, on a journalist? I don't, uh, yes, I'd like to say that was me, but I, but I don't think so. No, there's two. There's two. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, um, yeah I mean, it, 
it's it's problematic. I mean, truth and trust is a complicated issue, which is why we're going to unpack it today. But it's absolutely critical in a crisis. You know, who do you get your information on? Is that information trustworthy? So this sort of sorry state of affairs, 80 people, interestingly, trust themselves, which kind of is next to the family, which is 72%, uh, and parents, 52%. Obviously, half of the poll population don't trust their parents, maybe. Good to know that doctors, despite Neil Ferguson's attempts to undermine and Dr. Calderwood, there's at least 50% of the voters say that they still trust doctors. So it's problematic, essentially, isn't it, Katie? It is. What is interesting, though, is, like you say, is, is the, the myself, 81%. That's, that's quite interesting in itself. But also the, the, the family, juxtaposed against the politicians at 2%, family is 70%. So mm. that's some, some really interesting. And, and scientists, 38%. Mm. And business leaders only at 9 That's so makes yeah. some work to do that. Mm. And uh, so uh, the first sort of point in understanding truth, trust and transparency is, how on earth did we get here? I mean, this is not a good place to be in. And very interestingly, some people uh, that we talked to are aware of this phrase, which really emerged as word of the year in 2016. So this whole concept of what's called a post-truth world. We're in a world now where the currency of truth is not what it was since 2016, but it was going on before that. I mean, Time magazine were calling it previously the fact walls, who's telling the truth. And of course, everybody is familiar with Facebook or what's now been dubbed Fakebook, not least because of the Cambridge Analytica. We're all being fed stories, fake news in our little echo chambers and our little bubbles of Facebook. And it's influencing our opinions and you know, possibly even turning elections. And the US president is very hot in accusing everybody, either of individuals being fake news as a, as a human being, despite the fact that his own fact-checking is off the charts compared to most people. So, for example, there's some interesting stats when he was in the race for the presidency against Hillary. These are all fake news stories. The percentage of Americans who believed in these fake news stories, for example, Director Comey, uh, the FBI director, putting a sign on his front lawn in support of Trump, completely fake news, 80% of American voters believed that. So we're in a whole different landscape now with this sort of fake news, which is problematic because today we get 33% of our information from internet websites. So maybe we should have asked, you know, do you trust the internet? We get, and some of that's fed in through mobile phones. So we get our information through their mobile phones and our social media. And traditional newspapers, only 4% get their information, 12% from network television. So the sources of information have changed dramatically in recent years. And there's been a whole rash of books about this post-truth world. Ah, you just can't trust the truth anymore. The truth isn't what it was. The best of them probably is by Ken Wilber, where he actually sort of wrote about the interface between the post-truth world and Trump uh, and Trump's candidacy. So that's a really excellent book for those that want to read it. So we're in this post-truth world. And I just wanted to spend a couple of minutes by talking about, well, how did we get to this position? And it was can really... I, can I just stop yeah. you one second? Just yeah, a couple, sure. of, couple of things coming on, on the back of that. One comment saying it's one thing trusting people with integrity. It's another to trust people with your life. Absolutely. And we're going to get to that about... That's why trust and truth is uh, a much more nuanced thing than you might imagine. It's not as absolute as people believe. Either trust or truth 
So that's what we're going to unpack. So I, I totally agree with that comment. And another um, comment as well. I feel like you have to know about the motivations of others to consider whether to trust them or not. Correct. And is there a clear distinction between opinion and truth? And that's what we're going to unpack. So I just wanted to, before we get into those specifics, which we will get into, I just wanted to send, set a bit of a historical context because part of you know, how we're going to get out of this mess is understanding how we got into this mess in the first place. And this whole post-truth, the seeds of post-truth were actually sown in the 1960s, where the world went through uh, a huge cultural uh, leap forward, you know, in the sort of flower power generation. And a new cultural wave emerged. And when all new cultural waves emerge, it starts with all the gifts of the wave, which essentially were things like civil, the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King, you know, anti-hate crimes, uh, and so on, particularly in the U.S., and then, you know, the rise of feminism and the battle against all forms of social repression. Corporate social responsibility became a big thing and the environmental lobby got going. And then the United Nations sustainability goals were established and sustainability in business became a thing. And there's been ever since a real focus on inequity and equality and inclusivity. But sadly, there's still eight men and there they are, you know, Gates, Buffer, Bezos, Ortega, Zuckerberg, Ellison, Slim, and Bloomberg, those eight men have the same wealth as half the population of the planet. So we're still in an unbelievably unequal world. And it's sort of a bit obscene, really. So this all sort of started in the 60s, this focus on civil rights, feminism, CSR, sustainability, and inequality, social entrepreneurism more recently has become a big thing. So these are the gifts that started to sort of come in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s with a huge cultural revolution. So the wave that emerged starting in the 60s, but didn't really kick in until the noughties and beyond, sort of transcended the sort of objectivism that went before. So those are all the good news points, but something went wrong really in the last sort of five years. And we ended up in what's called the green swamp, the broad-minded pluralism that had emerged in the 60s. And as I say, really it, it sort of got going uh, massively in the last 20 years has collapsed in the last five years. And I just want to run through why that is. It started with this sort of idea that all truth is context dependent. Well, you would say that, wouldn't you? Because you're American, you're British, you're whatever, or, you know, you're born with a silver spoon in your mouth or you're, you know, so I, people started to believe that the way that you saw the world was dependent on the stance or the perspective you were taking. You know, it was down to your gender, your identity, your... Uh, how you self-identify, and that's called rampant relativism. Everything was relative. Everything depended on your political persuasion or your age or your education or whatever. So it was the idea that all truth is context-dependent. So that slipped into, so therefore there's no real truth. There's no universal truth. You've got your truth and I've got mine. It's all good. You know, it's okay. You know, you can have a different point of view to me, your truth, my truth, it's all good. And it's a small step to seeing that all knowledge, all facts is basically just a social construction, even science. And so you can see we started to slip into this idea that there are no facts, there are even no scientific facts. And so truth became merely a cultural fashion or interpretation. And then it sort of got ugly where if there's no real truth, anybody suggesting there is a truth is engaged in trying to impose their truth in a power play. You're imposing your truth on me. 
So that started to create a bit of a backlash. And the truth became synonymous with sort of cultural oppression. And you see this in the, some of the political correctness debates that go on. There's a brilliant debate, you know, one of the monk debates with Stephen Fry on this exact point. And so we got into a bit of a swamp and a bit of a mess. And so truth became seen as how one group gains power or control over another group. So the essence of all that is truth essentially collapsed into what one culture convinces another culture is true. So that's partly why we're in a bit of a mess right now, if that makes sense. That, did, that follow, did that follow, Katie? Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. It's almost like the, you know, what, what is the, the truth? Or if one group is saying, you know, we, we have the ultimate truth, then that's, that's what you have to follow, even if it you know, might be that the ultimate truth is democracy. And you have that sense of, well, there's only one, one right way, and mine is the right way. No, exactly. So what I want to do is just to tease apart something, well, how do we get out of this mess, you know? Uh, and one of the critical things is there are actually three types of truth. So one of the things we want to just get people to think about is there is, of course, a small number of what you might call absolute truths. You know, truths that are not time dependent, they're not religious dependent, they're not political persuasion percent. The sun always rises in the morning, you know, wherever you are in the world. Gravity exists. So so far. Well, yes, indeed, until it goes out. But there are some things that that don't require you to have a shared belief with anybody. Uh, I mean, it's true, whatever denomination, whatever belief structure, that in the morning the sun rises. You may not see it because we're blowing clouds, but the sun comes up on a daily basis. So there's actually a relatively small number of objective truths that are persistent over time. So, you know, go forward or back two or 300 years, it's still true. And it doesn't require you to believe it, it just still happens. So those are what we call objective or absolute truths in the sort of observable world. And they're often confused with a subjective truth or your personal truth, what's true for you personally, which does vary over time and it's particularly dependent on your own maturity. So what a six-year-old believes is true about the world is very different from what a 26-year-old believes is very different from what a 66-year-old believes, particularly if you've matured between 26 and 66. Some people may not have done, but you know, our personal truth, our subjective truth will vary over time. And that's a different sort of truth than an absolute truth. And then, of course, there's a shared or relative truth, a cultural truth, if you will. And that's different again. So I think a lot of the problems we get into uh, because we confuse an absolute truth. We think our personal truth is the truth. We think it's an absolute truth. And then we get into arguments with people, you know, <laughs> very classically, you might see, you know, football supporters who support a certain team saying the absolute truth is my team's the best team. You know, well, actually, it's just a subjective truth uh, or it might be a shared truth uh, amongst all the uh, other supporters. So we get into problems with truth because we confuse, you know, the absolute truth with a personal truth with a, with a relative truth. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Makes sense. And so I'd really encourage people to start to wonder about which truth am I dealing with here? And because if you can understand which truth, that goes to the whole thing about trust. So to pick up those questions that were coming out earlier, you know, who do we trust? Well, you know, it depends whether they're, you know, purveying or, or selling you an absolute truth, a personal truth, or a shared truth. 
And we, we think about trust, as you know, as a bit of an acronym. Uh, and the core piece to trust is understanding. It's very difficult to trust somebody if you don't understand. So if you think of trust as an acronym, so the T and the R is taking responsibility. And what are you taking responsibility for? The reason I like this is there's an action. If you want to build trust with somebody, there's an action required. You need to take responsibility. So it's not up to them, it's up to you. You need to take responsibility. Responsibility for what exactly? For understanding. Understanding what? Understanding someone else's traits, the way that they are, how they are, who they are, their motives, their value systems, if you will. So trust can be thought of as an acronym. And the, the, the central letter of the trust is the U. It's the understanding. So that sort of picks up, you know, how do we start to build trust? It's very difficult to build trust without some understanding. And so one of the ways of resolving this conundrum is how much do we understand the people we do or don't trust? How much do we understand ourselves? So can we trust ourselves? Well, the more we understand ourselves, the more we can trust ourselves. The more I understand you, Katie, the more uh, I can trust you and vice versa, the more you understand me. So there's a core piece here in trust in terms of understanding. And what are the traits? What do you mean by traits? Well, all, all of those sort of dynamics, if you will, you know, how people are essentially, you know, their inner values, their motivations, their behaviours and so on. So one of the ways of resolving this conundrum is to get a much greater level of understanding. So when we've been around the world asking people what drives their ability to trust, you say, if you think of somebody you really, really trust and ask yourself, well, why do I trust them? Or if somebody's lied to you recently and therefore you don't trust them, you know, why is it that you don't trust them? So when we go around the world and ask these questions to all the different corporations we work with, I say, look, there's only really four, four things that determine whether you trust or don't trust or whether somebody does or doesn't trust you. And I'll give you, uh, you know, $100 if you can come up with a fifth reason. Nobody's ever won the $100. So it seems that it all drops into these, what we call the four buckets of the trust recipe. First and foremost, as most people will realize, individual connection. So you might have really good childhood friends who you haven't seen for 20 years. And you, you haven't seen them for such a long time. So you're not sure whether trust is still there. And then you meet them for 10 minutes and it's right there. You're right back to it which is why when we're coaching leaders, you say, look, if you want to build trust or have people trust you or you start to trust them, you've got to go and walk the floor. You've got to make contact, which is why politicians go around on the stump, you know, because, you know, that personal connection is really critical in trust building. But in and of itself, it's not enough. So this is the point that somebody else was making earlier on, is you've got to understand motives and value systems. You know, where are they coming from? And this, this one is probably the biggest for most people. So if you mistakenly assume the other person has the same value system as you and they don't, then trust will break. So interestingly, if somebody has a very different value system to you, but you really deeply understand that, you can trust them, even if they have a very different way of operating to you. And then in addition to underlying motives, consistent delivery and competence. So if they promise to turn up to that meeting at 10 o'clock and they don't, or they're constantly 10 minutes late, and then you start to erode trust because they're not delivering. And brands, when you talk about a corporate brands, it's really a promise delivered. So if brands consistently deliver on their promise, then people start to trust those brands, whether it's Coke or Nike or some of the big brands, whatever, Dove Soap, whatever it is. So there's a delivery piece. And then the fourth bucket, probably the smallest of all really, is there's a sort of personal style. But the first three are the big three. There's personal connection, understanding motives and delivery. Those are the three 
big building blocks. If you want somebody to trust, spend some time with them, explain your motives and deliver what you promise. That makes sense? Yeah, just a couple of questions. What about integrity versus trust? Well, integrity, uh, I think, drops into the motives, right? So is somebody behaving consistent with their drivers or are they behaving inconsistently? So that might be the motive or it might be you said you were going to be there at 10 and you weren't. So where's your integrity? You were lying. So it might be one of those two buckets. So you've got to dig in a bit deeper about the integrity. When people talk about integrity, usually they're alluding to a sort of consistency of motive, you know, that they say this because, you know, they're you know, very money motivated and they have integrity. I mean, ironically, if you understand the motives of a thief, you can trust a thief. You know, you can trust the fact that if you leave your wallet on the table, they will steal your wallet, you know, because so in a way, the thief has integrity. They're acting according to their own motives, which is, you know, there's not enough in the world. I need to get more for myself. And so you can trust that you can trust they'll steal from you. So you don't leave your wallet on the side of the table. So integrity is usually alluding to people living according to their own value system. Just one other point, Alan, before we go on. Uh, One theory on trust is it has two elements, competence, trust, I trust your expertise, and benevolent trust, I trust that you won't do or say anything to hurt me. Trust isn't a simple unitary thing. No, well, in, in, in that example, they've given two dimensions, which both fall into our recipe. So competence, we've got there in bucket three, and the motives, you know, so the benevolence, well, what, what, what is benevolence? What's benevolence for you? You might think you're being benevolent, the other person doesn't, because you've got different motives. So it's an alignment uh, of motives that dictates whether you think somebody's being benevolent or not. So is giving a child uh, a lollipop uh, a benevolent thing to do? Well, one person might think, yeah, that's nice of being benevolent. Another person might think you're rotting my teeth. So that's not very kind. You know, so it depends what your value system is as to whether you think a lollipop is benevolent or not benevolent. So the benevolent point really drops into bucket two and the competence drops into bucket three. Okay, that's cool. So the other interesting thing about trust is it's been our experience working all over the world with clients that there are two types of organizations or two types of people. There's what you might call trust givers, people whose natural stance is they're just trusting right out of the gate. And there's an interesting sort of dynamic there where you start off almost like with 100% trust. And so those people are sort of managing the slippery slope. So as they interact with people, they're trying to make sure that people stay at 100%. But, you know, sometimes people just don't do what they say or something goes wrong and trust erodes over time. You know, and so if you manage to keep them at the 100%, you know, you start to tell yourself this story, I was right to trust them. But if they slip down a slippery slope and they get to this critical point where you go from a hero to a zero and trust breaks, then everything changes. Now, if you're not a trust giver, you're you're probably a trust earner. And interestingly, that's almost going in the opposite direction. It's like a wedge in the opposite direction. And so you start essentially with zero trust of people and you're going, well, go on then, prove it to me. Why should I trust you? And those are the trust earners. And as you get up the slope, of that wedge of trust circle um, of trust <laughs> you get to the circle of trust yeah you become so it's not a circle a lot... in your in your example <laughs> no exactly but you've earned my trust right and you you'll cross a, a rubicon where you're in the inner circle 
Mm. <laughs> of course, some people have several circles. There's the outer circle, the inner circle, the deep inner circle, and so on. But you'll get circles of trust. And then, you know, interestingly, when people have done that, and you'll see this in some politicians' supporters' base, those politicians can literally lie through their teeth. But if they're in that individual voter's circle of trust, they can literally say anything, and people will continue to trust them. So uh, even when it's shown that, that what they were saying was a patent lie, they still trust them. So there's this sort of two orientations. And of course, you know, it might take two days or two years to get to the circle of trust. And so they're very different companies to work in. You know, it's much more open and transparent and warm and friendly to be in a trust giving culture. And when trust needs to be earned, it's much more metric driven, but people know where they are. So it's a much more vague in the trust giving culture and much more precise in the trust. So there's upsides and downsides to both dynamics. Quick so, question, Alan. Yeah. Can an individual be both a trust giver and trust earner in different situations? Yes. I think in my experience, people tend to lean in one direction or another, but there might be different people in your life. So you might be a trust giver to your nearest and dearest, like, you know, who do you trust on the poll we did at the beginning? So you might, you know, be a trust giver in relation to your family and everybody else has got to earn it. So you'll, you'll often see it like that. But even so, people who tend to be really strong on the trust givers tend to give trust to complete strangers, in my experience. So I think you can do both, but people tend to have a, a predilection for one or the other. So uh, if I can just sort of summarize where we got to, uh, just in the interest of time, um, what I'd say about truth and trust and transparency, you know, the sort of first takeaway is just question everything. Like, don't assume that just because the doctor said this or the scientist said this or the journalist said this or your boss or even a close family member said something that what they're saying is true. So first of all, question, well, who's saying this and uh, why are they saying this and who really benefits? So if I believed what this politician or boss or colleague was saying, who benefits from that? So it's just to be a little bit more cautious. And, and, and as a maturation process for human beings, you'll find that you know, two or three-year-old children are unbelievably trusting, and partly because they haven't matured their frontal lobes to be a bit more discerning. And, you know, there's a sort of book, for example, with children, children believe everything you say, they take things very literally, and they're very trusting. But as we mature as human beings, we start to become a little bit more discerning. So I wouldn't encourage people to be cynics, but definitely be a bit more discerning about who's saying this, why are they saying it, and who benefits if it's true. Yeah. So you're not saying being be cynical? No. Skept no. Skeptical? Maybe. Uh, well, discerning. I mean, I think that's where the understanding comes in is let, let's be a little bit more discerning about, well, you know, what's this source of information here? What's, you know, um, how many other people are saying this? Can I go to completely contrary sources? And are they saying the same thing? So it's good to get information. I mean, the risk of social media, we live in such all of us are really at risk of living in a sort of social bubbles, you know, information bubbles, where our confirmation, we get confirmation bias, where our belief structure, we only seek out the information that reinforces our belief structure, which is why, you know, getting most of your information from Facebook or Instagram is a very dangerous thing because it's, it's sort of replete with confirmation bias. You only see the stories because of all these algorithms they're running that reinforce your pre-existing belief structure. So question everything, even the things that you think are right, question that too. Not from a cynical point of view, but just be a bit more discerning. So that would be my sort of 
first tip and and also think about the truth in three ways uh, the i we and it truth so you know the absolute truth the objective truth is not to dependent on time or belief it doesn't matter what your belief is the sun still rises it doesn't matter what your belief is gravity still exists you know so even you know flat earthers will be experiencing gravity you know they're not floating off into space so it doesn't really matter so that's the objective truth there aren't actually that many things that are absolutely objectively true most of it comes in which is why you know we have such a problem with it into personal subjective truths which change over time as i mature and then shared collective truths. So think about truth in those three dimensions. And we really get into trouble when we confuse those three types of truth. And my final point for people to, to noodle on is, if you're going to trust what people say as true or not true, really try and cultivate some understanding. So if you're going to trust yourself, the more you understand yourself, the easier it is to trust yourself, to trust your judgment. Can I trust my own judgment? Well, you know, as any human being will know, that sometimes I'm wrong about things. So, you know, I've been wrong lots of times. So can I really trust myself to do the right thing? Well, the more you understand yourself, the more you can trust yourself. The more you understand another human being, the more you can trust them. So it's a complex thing, but hopefully that's been sort of interesting just to try and, you know, throw a few pebbles in the pond in the relation to this wicked issue of truth, trust and transparency. That's great, Alan. There's just one more, it's just a couple of questions going back to... Over the last 50 years, have our media outlets blurred the truth? Did Pathé News focus more on absolute truth than the BBC does today? No, I think it's, as I said before, understand the historical context. So we would have media sources that would objectively observe something and just report that. And as we got into that sort of cultural evolution starting in the 60s, but really kicking on massively uh, since the year 2000, uh, we started slipping on the slippery slope. So from that perspective, we might say that actually, with Pathé News was tending to report, you know, observable facts. But, you know, even, you know, Second World War, there was lots of propaganda, you know, and so the government would often put out stories. So it wasn't like the halcyon days, you know, 50 years ago, where everything reported was the absolute truth by Pathé News. There was still propaganda. There's nothing new here. Yeah. So it's being discerning. I mean, it, it's probably, you know, not unreasonable to think there's been a bit more sliding into subjective and relative truths more of late. And, you know, news has become entertainment in this post-truth world in which we live. So there's probably some general kind of validity to that statement as, you know, Pathé News was a bit more objective than most of our outlets today. But I don't think it's an all or nothing. It's probably just by a matter of a few degrees. Okay. As ever, Alan, always, uh, always fascinating to, to talk to you. Thanks very much for today. And uh, we're going to be back um, next Thursday with the new normal, looking at ways of working and potentially looking at new business models as well. So same time, same place. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bye-bye. If we've piqued your curiosity or you've enjoyed anything we've talked about in this podcast, please subscribe, email us or just visit our website at complete-coherence.com.